Well, as you guys are taking out your seats, you can open your Bibles to that passage our friend Aaron just read. We're looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. How's everyone doing this morning? Isn't it a joy to be able to gather with other Christians and worship Jesus together? It's always encouraging to me. I got an email this week from PSE, and the, the caption, the title was, Out with the Old, In with the New. It was a, a marketing, an ad to get me to get into a rebate to replace my appliances. That's what they were getting after. And it reminded me of a, a Walmart commercial that uh, aired a, last year sometime, and it was kind of the whole premise of the commercial was this phrase, out with the old, in with the new. The commercial opened with a guy walking out, and he's got burgers. He's about to barbecue with a friend on his plate. He's walking down to the grill, and the, the narrator says, thinking about having some fun with the barbecue. And it turns to the barbecue. He walks up to it, and it's this old kind of rusty thing. The guy tries to lift the handle up to open the grill to get it started, and the handle falls off. And he goes, not going to cut it with that old thing. And then the camera angle turns to the women who are sitting on the patio, and they're sitting in these older, rusty chairs. And literally, one of the ladies falls through the chair. And the narrator goes, out with the old, in with the new. And the saying said something like this. Uh, with Walmart's unbeatable prices, you can finally get everything you want for spring. That was kind of the caption. Everything that you want. And this is kind of the... the uh, the bait, the slogan, the what they're getting after. A lot of advertisements, commercials, companies are using, right? They want to get rid of the old, that frumpy, dumpy old stuff that you have, and get the new. Right? You need, a, you need to get rid of that old car. You need to get a new, better car with new features. You need to get rid of those old, frumpy clothes. You need to buy these new, sexy, hip clothes. And the premise of these commercials is you need to change your circumstances, you need to change your materials, you need to change your things. This is kind of the message that marketing media is presenting to us. But the Bible presents something much different, and I would say much more offensive. The message of the Bible is not, you don't need to change your circumstances, you don't need to change your materials, you don't need to change the things that are in your life. The problem is not your lack of resources, the problem is not your lack of new things, the problem is you. You need change. You need deep, lasting change. It kind of seems like these commercials that a lot of times you can buy into, get sucked into, are so enticing because there's a common thread, something in our humanity, our heart, that wants newness. We want things to be new. We have a desire, out with the old, in with the new. But until we have Christ, this satisfaction, this desire will never be met this desire for newness. And whatever you believe, whether you believe the message of Christianity or not, let me encourage you, let me set before you that this is ultimately what you're after. Your desire for newness, your desire for happiness, for energy, for joy, uh, will never be satisfied, filled, completed, unless you have Christ. So this is kind of the assumption. This is what I'm basing the message off of this morning, and this is what we're looking at this morning. Out with the old, in with the new. This is what Paul lays out in this passage. Uh, what this passage lays out is a contrast. It shows a difference of Life outside of Christ, those who are out of Christ, and those who are in Christ. Describes how to experience the new life that Christ has, how that happens. It describes how to experience, how to grow in it, how to progress in it, and then finally it looks at practically how does that play itself out? What does that look like? 
So the flow of thought in this passage is verses uh, 17 through 20. You kind of have that urge of Paul, right? Where he says, don't walk as the Gentiles do. And then we see again, a little sidebar by the fact of the dash, a little sidebar train in thought. And then he shows in verses 25 through 32, what he means by that. What he means by not walking like the Gentiles do. So let's jump right in. If you have your Bibles, uh, Ephesians 4, 17. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we have some provided on the bar out here. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Just take it. It's yours. So verse 17, Paul says, Now this I testify in the Lord. I testify, this is a grave giving witness, similar to how um, founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg right, went before Congress this week to testify over the data that was leaked, the hack, foreign states getting this. It's very serious. This is the language that's used, to bear witness, to give a witness as evidence in a law court. Paul is saying, I testify in the Lord. Meaning what he's about to say here is serious. It's solemn. Hey, listen up. Pay attention, right? This is what he's getting at. Take this seriously. You must not walk as the Gentiles do. Now the Gentiles here is used as a phrase not referring to people who are not Jewish, although that's what Gentiles mean. The, The phrase that he's using here is those who are not in covenant relationship with God. The pagans those who are not allied with trusting. They're not in relationship with God. They're godless. And we have to remember that up until this point in, the, in Ephesians, Paul has, through chapters one through three, laid out the gospel, the identity of what it means to be in Christ, and he's writing to Christians. So because of this, because of what he has written in chapters one through three, he's saying, because you are in Christ, do not walk, behave, live like someone who is outside of Christ. doesn't make sense. You're in Christ. Don't walk like someone who's outside of Christ. And he says it in, in, in chapter 4, in verses 1 through 16, Paul kind of urges, he's getting at the same thing. He's urging them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. So walk in a manner worthy of being in Christ. But in then verses 17 through 32, he's, he's talking about don't walk as the Gentiles do, which don't walk as someone who's not in Christ. So it's kind of two ways of saying the same thing. It's two ways of getting at that, what it means to walk, what it means to live out of your identity in Christ. And then Paul goes on in verse 17 to list out um, these what goes on in the mind of these pagans or what describe them in more detail. He says in verse 17, um, you no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. This literally means that their minds have become worthless, useless, incapable of producing results. The Bible describes that the human mind was made to know God, to love God, to, to spend a life seeking to learn more about him. So those who are godless, those who are outside of Christ, they have futile minds. And he says in verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. Darkened is unwilling or unable to perceive or understand. They, have, they are alienated from the life of God. And the word life there means life source. So the life source of God is, it means a life characterized by health, happiness, exuberance, energy, vitality, joy, the life of God. This is what he's getting at. They're alienated from that. Which leads to our first truth, the truth, I think, the first point from the passage that in verses 17 through 19, all those who are outside of Christ are alienated from the new life in God. Paul continues, he says, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart, they have become callous. Now remember the Bible, when it uses the word heart, it's not just a center of emotions. It's a center of thought, of reason, of consciousness. It's a kind of all-encompassing term that the idea that they had with the term heart. And they become callous. Have you ever shake someone who has a really calloused hand, 
or you, you develop a callus, maybe you play guitar, or you work with your hands or whatever, and you, know, you don't have a lot of feeling there. That's what he's talking about. No feeling of shame, no feeling of, of guilt in regards to God's, God's law. They become callous. Because of that, they have given themselves up to sensuality, which means sinful abandon, indulging in sinful pleasures unrestrained by God, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, filth. This, is, this term is used especially to talk about sexual sins. They have an appetite, a greed, uh, something that will never satisfy, but they will continue to seek after uh, filth, immorality, impurity. And you see Paul's progression here. So they have a hardness of heart. Out of the hardness of heart, they have a darkened understanding. Because of that, they're alienated from God. And out of that overflows evil actions or behavior. It's similar to what Paul writes in Romans 1. If you have your Bibles and you want to re- uh, flip there with me, I'll be reading Romans 1, kind of verses 18. Starting in verse 18 through verse 31, Paul writes a similar thing. He says in verse 18, Romans 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. See the similar language he's using? Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies, because they exchanged the truth about God and uh, the truth about God for a lie and worship and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave up to a debased mind to do what ought to be not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. See the progression of thought. Hardness of heart, darkened understanding, alienated from God, out of that overflows sinful behavior sinful fruit. So after Paul lists out the profile of the Gentiles, the reality that all who are outside of Christ are alienated from the new life of God in Christ, Paul lists out this profile. He now directs his focus to the saints who are in Ephesus. He turns more of his attention to them, those who are in Christ. He says in verse 20, and I could kind of hear him saying it like this, but that is not the way you learned Christ, right? Something like that, something forceful, energetic, this is not the way you learn Christ. And there's actually even an exclamation point, which we know means, hey, this is important. Command. An exclamationatory tone. I just might have made that word up. I think I did. <laughs> so that is not the way you were taught in Christ. That's not the way you learned Christ. Because you are in Christ, you should not live like someone who is outside of Christ. Doesn't make sense. Then Paul, like I said before, he kind of gets into the sidebar. You see that in verse 21, or after the end of verse 20, into verse 21, because that little dash gets on this little progression of thought. He says, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, 
and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So second point this morning that we see from the passage is all in Christ have put off the old self and put on the new self to have new life in Christ. All in Christ have put off the old self and put on the new self to have new life in Christ. So remember, Paul's writing to Christians. He's writing to Ephesians Christians, those who have repented and placed their faith in the gospel, those who believe in the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, those who have died to themselves, died to the world, died to sin, and accepted life in Christ. Paul says, I assume that you were taught in this to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Now, when you look at the original language, the Greek, of what Paul wrote this letter in, the verb tense that he used there, and put off and put on, is what they call the aorist tense, meaning it's once and for always. So it happens once, but it happens for all. Once and for always. So in other words, the former self, the old self, the self that was deceived by sinful desires, has been put off. It's gone. It's gone. The new self has been put on. Through the regeneration of the spirit, through justification, the new self has been put on. Right? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. This is what he's talking about here. Paul, and Paul uses imagery of clothing. There's a great British preacher by the guy name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says it like this. This is clearly a figure, and it's an obvious one. It's a figure of putting off a garment. You take off your gown and you lay it aside, or you put it on. Paul chooses this particular analogy in order to give us the sense of the finality of the action. Either you take your own garment off, or you put it on. It cannot be half on or half off. You will never remain in a neutral, naked condition. It is either something that you put aside, there it is, you have finished it, thrown it away as it were, or you take it up and put it on. It is a strong and graphic figure of speech, and it was precisely what the Paul wanted at this stage. It conveys the more, the full idea of forsaking and renouncing, laying a thing aside, not using it anymore. When Paul reminds them of this, he's not saying that putting off the old self and putting on the new self is something that you continually have to do or strive for. It's already been done. You're not to continue to live or to, to try to strive to put on this new self because a new self has already been put on in Christ. What he's getting at is you're to continue to live out of its significance by giving up, renouncing, considering it as it is, dead. So consider who you are as you already are, dead to sin, alive in Christ. That's what Paul's getting at. Paul is getting at them to put the reality of putting to practice what God has already made them. This kind of weird idea that you see growing up in, in Christ, living and maturing as a Christian, becoming who you are. Giving up the old way of practices in life. Paul says it doesn't make sense. It's illogical to continue in a way that you're not a part of anymore. It's like who wants to be in a dead-end job? They call it a dead-end job because it's not going anywhere. It's a dead-end what Paul is getting at. The, the former self, the self that was outside of Christ, that was a dead end. Identity, future, every, dead end. More, worse than a dead end. Had no, it was decaying, it was death, it was deserving of the wrath of God, eternal punishment, separation from him. But this new self, the self that's been put on, this self has a future. 
This self will grow in maturity and Christ-likeness. This self has a future that will be continually renewed. And notice the sandwich that Paul makes in verses 22 through 24. He says, put off the old self, which belongs to the form of life, can deceive through deceitful desires, and put on the new self, and in between the bread, in the sandwich, the middle of it, is be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So put off once and for all, put on once and for all, but in the middle there is be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And the verb that is used there is the present tense, with infinite tense, meaning continually do it. It's continually happening. You go on being renewed. It starts, but it never stops. Now, I was thinking about this phrase, the spirit of your mind. How many of you would say you use that phrase in kind of common vernacular, common everyday language? Right. Well, in the spirit of my mind, this is what I was. You ever use that phrase? It's kind of foreign to us. What is it getting at? What does it mean? I don't just think it means mind. Because doesn't just say mind. I think the words that God uses and lays out in scripture are there for a reason. We should try to seek to understand them. What do they mean? How can we study them? I heard a pastor uh, say it like this, and I thought it was really helpful as I was listening to a sermon on this passage this week. So the spirit of your mind says the human mind is not a sophisticated computer managing objective data, which then it faithfully presents to the heart for appropriate emotional responses. It says the mind has a spirit to it. In other words, the mind has a mindset. The mind has a mindset. The mind just doesn't have a view of things. It has a viewpoint. The mind just doesn't perceive. It has a posture. It has a demeanor. It has a bent. The problem with the mind is not simply that it's finite. The mind already has a problem before it delivers anything to the heart. It's hostile. Our minds are not neutral. I think that's what Paul is getting at. Anyone who's been a Christian for a day, maybe, or even a month or a year, knows that when you receive Christ, when you repent and place your hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, things don't become perfect. Like, sin can still be enticing. Unless it's just me. Right? Are shaking your heads with me? If you've been a Christian for a number of years, you know that once you become a Christian, you're not perfect. There's a battle, there's a struggle, there's a fight. And because we don't cease to sin, once we believe in Jesus, once we trust in Jesus, once we cherish in him, we're not perfected upon salvation, we can still be bent, we can still be deceived, we can still fall, and I think we have to constantly fight ourselves to fall into sin. We can still get angry, we can still say harsh words, we can still gossip, we can still hurt others, we still fail to forgive others, we fall into laziness and pride and lust, we can be deceived by sinful desires, we can come to God and his word and not be moved by it, not respond in worship. We can come to a gathering like this and not uh, overflow in thankfulness and praise of God for what he has done. Our hearts can be callous to that. We can still fall into deceitful desires. The appetites, even that Paul lists out in verses 17 through 19, uh, can still be real struggles for those who are in Christ. Our, our flesh, our sinful nature still remains, and we can still fall into these deceitful desires that Paul writes out. And we have to be, I think, uh, aggressive and focused and aware of what's going on in our mind. We have to be aware and uh, cognizant 
Okay. Cognizant of what's going on. Because our world, our culture thinks that there's nothing wrong with living outside of God's law. In fact, uh, in kind of our Western culture, the sin is really glorified and praised. Sin is celebrated in our culture, in our media. Sin can be viewed as harmless fun. Sin can be viewed as an, an intrinsic right that we have. Sin can be viewed as inherent freedom that we can live how we want. We can view sex how we want. And it seems sadly that many, many times we can be deceived and are capable of falling into this deception. You know the lame part about being deceived? You don't know it, right? <laughs> Who loves being deceived? The lame part about being deceived is you don't know you're being deceived, right? That's, what's, that's why it's called being deceived. So there's an ignorance, I think, even too, that we have to grow out of. We have to be taught to surround ourselves with. We can be deceived in our ignorance. Maybe we've been taught, maybe we've had a lackadaisical attitude towards sin. I think this gets us the importance of having the Bible be at the center of a church, having leaders who are centered and serving the word faithfully to their church. Maybe our minds can be dulled. Maybe our minds this morning are dulled by worldly things and we don't even realize that we've been deceived. I think one of the most deadly things, one of the things that uh, Christians have been deceived by is through internet, media, television. One of the things that I think is most hurtful that clogs the renewal of our mind is the, the deadening factor that media excessive entertainment has on our minds. A pastor by the name of John Piper says it like this in the book, Don't Waste Your Life, which uh, I know Nathan and Will and myself, if you've read it, you'll recommend it. It's a great book. He says it like this. Television is one of the greatest life wasters of our modern age. And of course, the internet is running to catch up and may have caught up. You can be more selective on the internet, but you can also select worse things with only the judge of the universe watching. TV still reigns as the great life waster. The problem with TV is not just how much smut or indecency, obscenity, though that is a problem. Just the ads are enough to sow fertile seeds of greed and lust no matter what program you're watching. The greater pro problem is banality. A mind fed daily on TV diminishes. Your mind was made to know and love God. Its faculty for this great calling is ruined by excessive TV. The context is so trivial and so shallow that the capacity of the mind to think worthy thoughts withers and the capacity of the heart to feel deep emotions shrivels. A guy by the name of Neil Postman shows why. He says, this is what's happening in America, that television is transforming our serious public business into junk. Television disdains exposition, which is serious, consequential, rational, and complex. It offers instead a mode of discourse in which everything is accessible, simplistic, concrete, and above all, entertaining. He says, as a result, America is the world's first culture in jeopardy of amusing itself to death. Let me just lay before you that if you're here this morning and you're wondering... I don't have a mind, I don't have, my mind is not set on things of God, I don't have a desire for God, I don't have an appetite to God. What are you feeding into your mind? What are you using to transform your mind? Something is always trying to fight for it or buy uh, your mind, your thoughts, your, uh, what, your perceptions, what's going on. Are you aware of what you're watching and how much you're watching and what is it doing to your mind? The problem is, uh, because, of, because of television and because of this, we can be kind of ignorant to it. 
Many Christians can be deceived that it doesn't matter what I fill my thoughts with, it doesn't matter how much TV I watch, what shows I watch, whatever it is, whatever entertainment I view, I have the freedom to do what I want. Meanwhile, their affections for God are not growing, their desire for holiness, their desire for the word, their desire for loving others is not growing. And let me just lay before you, let me present for you, there is a constant battle for your mind, and if you are not aware of that, you are already being defeated. Just a little bit more, Emmerich. (laughs) There is a constant battle in our mind, and if you are unaware of it, you are already being defeated. You ever heard the the phrase, the saying, you become what you eat? Yeah? Yeah? How much more true is that of us spiritually? What are you eating? What do you think about most often and or most deeply? Here's what I found in my brief... uh, experience in pastoral ministry and and being a Christian, the most godly people that I know don't really spend a lot of time on the internet or on TV or uh, in entertainment. They spend more time in the word, more time in prayer, and more time with the church. If we eat entertainment, we eat cultural truth, we're deceived by deceitful schemes and desire, we can't wonder why our affections, our thoughts, our attitude towards God is so dim. But then I think, Paul, what he does here is he lists out how do we renew our minds. This phrase that Paul gets at here, put on the new self, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. What is it? How do we do that? What does that look like? I think it looks like repentance. The principle from that text is that all in Christ are to live a continual realization of sin, a renouncement of it, a refusal to commit it, and a resolution to hate it. but a part of what has been biblically, historically referred to as repentance. It's a changing of our mind so that we see God as true. We turn from our sin and we turn to God. This is what Martin Luther, he opened the Reformation. He nailed 95 theses to the door of the Kaust Church in Wittenberg, Germany. The very first, the top of these theses, anyone know what it is? The very first one. Mark the Reformation. Martin Luther. It's important. He said, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. God by the name of Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said it like this, repentance is the discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, and a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what once he hated and hate what once he loved. This is encouragement. This is encouragement to live for you. You're here this morning and you're thinking, man, everything other than God entices me, excites me. I want to spend my time thinking about it, loving it, and taking it into my mind. The things of God, I wouldn't say I hate them, but I wouldn't say that I love them. Repentance is the way that God uses through the spirit, through his word, through prayer, changing your affections. So that when you come to the scripture, the scripture that once bored you, that once uh, you didn't want to be in, in God who uh, you wanted to you know, flip the bird to, see you later, God, I'm going to do my own thing. The God that you once hated, the things of God that you once hated, you will now grow to love. 
if you're here this morning and thinking, man, my affections for God are so small, I could never be like this great godly person, whoever it is. The godly people that I know, the people that love God the most, it didn't happen. It happened through a life of repentance, a life of identifying sin, realizing sin, confessing it, and turning to God continually. So I would say you could talk to the most godly person in the world and they would say, there are times where I wake up in the morning and I, I, I want to do anything but pray. Like you wake up set on sin. We need to repent. We need to remove the bad, cleanse, purify our minds, and we need to add in the good. Uh, Paul says it like this in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We need to change the way we think. And this happens through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says it like this in John 16, 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. In other words, you can say the Holy Spirit is not a preacher. The Holy Spirit will not just sanctify you apart from the word and from the godly community in the church. Like you're thinking here praying, okay, God, just sanctify me. And the word is not a, a part of your life. The Holy Spirit has no, nothing to work off of. As my friend Carrie says, there's no basis for the Holy Spirit to work off if we're not saturated in the word. The Holy Spirit brings transformation. Paul says like this in Romans 15, 15. Grace has been given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, and he says, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So we need the word, we need the spirit to help us in this process. The Holy Spirit brings transformation, but the Holy Spirit needs a basis to work off of. The word. The word applied through prayer. I think this happens as we pray the Bible. We prayerfully read the scriptures. We hear the scriptures being preached and taught. We reshape our minds to the truth. We ask the Holy Spirit to help us, to give us desires for God, to reshape our thinking. We feast on the word. We encounter God in prayer. We intake God-glorifying music, God-centered and gospel-centered community. And we, this helps us grow to become like Jesus. We need all these factors at play in our life to help in the sanctification process. And I think this is why listening to God-glorifying music, listening to podcasts, listening to sermons, um, reading books, being around word-saturated people, gospel-centered people is so important in our sanctification process. We need the church to help us, remind us of the truth, speak truth and love to us, to think in new, good, proper ways. This is how we grow in Christ. This happens through repentance. Would you give your life to a life of repentance? We become more like Christ as we repent, we renew our minds, and then we walk in the way of Jesus. This is what Paul lists out in, in verses 25 through 32. I think it's just what he's getting at. Obedience flows from a mind that's been renewed by the Spirit. The Spirit of a mind been renewed by the Word, by community, by prayer. It flows out in obedience, which is what he describes in Ephesians 4.23. So our third point from the passage, that all in Christ are to walk in the new life. Paul says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his labor. labor. Neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work, so that he can share. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that is good for building up, uh, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by which you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, as you read through these, and I, as I first read through these and studied these, it, it kind of initially seems like a random hodgepodge of uh, wisdom sayings or proverbs or kind of commands that Paul kind of strings out. It doesn't seem there to be a, a flow of thought or a connection between these two. They kind of seem random. But what is Paul is doing here is he's giving tangible actions, works of what living the new life in Christ looks like. And there's two things that he does here. He lists out how we are to walk the new life following Christ's example, but also through this commands, he is helping what he talked about in chapter two, guard and maintain and protect the unity of the church, the unity of the spirit that we are one body. All these commands guard the unity of the church. They protect, they promote what builds up the church, what builds up community what he's getting at here. He contrasts two things, similar to how he talks about putting on and putting off. So he says, put away falsehood, speak truth. He says, don't steal, work. He says, don't talk negatively, don't put people down, build people up. He says, don't be bitter, love. So what I've done in the outline, if you have your uh, sermon outline or your, your, the notes here, I've listed out seven things that I think should characterize those who walk in the new life in Christ. Seven things that are taken, uh, we could say, from the positive form of these commands the opposite of the negative, the don'ts of these commands in verses 25 through 32. So through repentance and renewal, we, I think as Christians, if you are in Christ, should be growing in these characteristics. And number one, being truthful speech. God is true. His word is true. He speaks truth. We are to reflect God in that way, speaking truth. Because when we lie, when you are not honest, when we're not truthful, we don't reflect God. We reflect our former master, our former father, the ruler of this world, Satan. Satan who he can't speak truth. It's not in his character. He's the master of lies, the father of lies. Lying is not some sort of trivial thing. When you're lying, you're literally reflecting Satan. Number two, I would call it righteous anger. When Paul says, be angry and do not sin, he's quoting from the Septuagint, which was the the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. Another way uh, that, that some Bibles have translated this is in your anger, do not sin. It's like the Bible knows, the Bible's a real book. The Bible knows that you're going to get angry. I think the Bible would even present for you that there's a type of anger that is a good anger, what, what I would call righteous anger. So be angry and do not sin. It's not, I don't think Paul is commanding us to be angry people. Like we're just walking around and we're grumpy and we're angry and we're short. But there is an anger that, that I think Paul's speaking of, a righteous anger. What I call a, a, a hatred for things that are worthy of being hated. Sin. We should have a righteous anger towards sin. We should have a righteous anger towards the oppression, the abuse of women and children in our society. A righteous anger for injustice for the murder of innocent children, born and unborn. Paul says, I think some practical advice too. He says, don't, uh, don't let the sun go down in your anger, which 
So I was kind of go back and forth. Is it to be taken literal? Is it not? Uh, I don't think it would be bad to take it literally. But the point of, that Paul is saying here is don't let your anger go. Like deal with your anger. Don't let it harbor in your heart where you become bitter. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. Put your side, put your, your anger aside quickly. Deal with it. Number three, honest work. Paul clearly lays out what repentance should look like through uh, describing this thief. It's a change of who they are. They're no longer stealing. They're no longer robbing. They're working so that they can share. So what should characterize us as Christians we should grow in is honest work. You see clearly, I think, if, you're, if you even want a clearer glimpse of what repentance is, right? You see this. Stopping the negative, so stop stealing, and start working. Repentance is what it is. Number four, uplifting talk. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only that is good for building up, as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. There's a wisdom and discernment piece in this as well. Fits the occasion. Number five, submission to set on the spirit. Paul writes, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. I think this is a reference to um, what the Bible talks about in Isaiah 63.10, describing the Israelites, how they were rebellious and always uh, neglecting God, falling away from God. Isaiah 63.10 says, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Paul is warning his readers, do not have a rebellious attitude toward the Spirit. Submit to the Spirit. Paul says that uh, for those in Christ, our mind is to be set on the Spirit, not set on the flesh. Another point that I thought was interesting in this, in this verse here in verse 30 is that uh, our sin grieves the Spirit, like he's a person who feels this pain, this sorrow. Number six, love. Paul says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and anger and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now the word anger here is a little different than Paul uses just earlier and said, be angry and do not sin. This anger that he's talking about is intense anger that does not subside. Often an epic scale. This is rage, fury, outburst. This is what it's talking about here. That is not the good kind of anger. Put that away. <laughs> we don't need that. We don't need slander. We don't need abusive words that are spoken to damage someone's reputation. We don't need bitterness, which Paul talks about the kind of the leading, the head of this. The bitterness comes from a heart that's not right with God, not forgiving others. And seven, tender forgiveness. Paul says in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I think what Paul does at the end of this verse here, he's, he's, he gives us the key to transformation. He gives us the key on what it takes, on how we can repent, how we can reflect and renew our mind. So just as God and Christ forgave you, so you are to forgive others. This is, this is similar to the Lord's Prayer. So God, forgive us our debts. As, help us forgive others as you forgive our debts. I just butchered that, but that's the, that's the main point. If you're here this morning and you're wondering, this seems like an impossibility. Repentance? something that I hated to become something that I loved? How do I do that? How do we do that? What do we center ourselves on to do that? Paul gives us the key here. Jesus. 
you might be able to, through hard work, through your religious, striving, white-knuckling, you might be able to change from being bitter to a little less bitter. And I don't want you to hear, hear this morning to think that the message that I'm presenting before you is you need to try harder to do these things. That's not, gonna, that's not how repentance works. Repentance works by centering, soaking, reflecting on the cross. How do you become more patient? How do you become more loving? How do you become more forgiving? How do I forgive people that have hurt me so badly? How do I build up others instead of tearing them down? How do I work instead of trying to use or steal from others? How do I speak the truth instead of lying? Paul's latest force is the, is the gospel. Not try harder. You don't change from doing from striving to obey. You change from reflecting on the gospel. Will recommended a book to me as we've been reading through Ephesians called Ephesians for You. It's a book written by a guy named Richard Koken. And he describes in there a, a missionary who's, uh, who was in a, a persecuted area, a closed-off area. His wife had been raped. And yet he, forgive, he forgave those who did this. How could, you, how, could you, how could you forgive someone who raped your wife? How is that possible? When asked about it, he says, when I think about how much Christ forgave me, I have done way worse. How do you become a more forgiving person? You come to the cross and you realize how forgiving Christ has been for you. How do you grow in patience? You realize you come to the cross and you think about how patient has God been with me? All throughout my life, I've been so impatient with others or whatever it is. God, you've been so patient with me. Help me to become, help me to see myself like you see me and, and not only in my sin, but in your patience and your kindness towards me that it may overflow. How do we grow in hard work? We think and we reflect upon the reality that God does not stay up in heaven and let us stay in our misery. He sent his son to work for us. Jesus came, he lived the life that we could have never lived. He lived a perfect life. He didn't stay up in heaven, he came down, he worked. How do we become people of uplifting speech? How do we become people of love? The Bible says, well, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Meaning, while we were hating God, while we were cursing God, profaning against him, he loved us. You're wondering, how does transformation come out? It comes from reflecting upon the gospel. And this is what we want to be at about the church. This is why we sing songs about the gospel. This is why we partake of communion every week. We want it to be at the center of our minds, the center of our thoughts. Jesus Christ crucified. If you're here this morning and you're curious about knowing Jesus, how do I, how do I experience this transformation? How do I experience uh, repentance? How do I repent? How do I put my faith in Jesus? I would love to talk with you. We're going to move into to a time now of reflecting upon 
the gospel by partaking in communion and by responding in song. So every week we gather, we share a meal together in which as we do so, we are reflecting and remembering upon the life, death, and resurrection. We come forward, we take the bread, and you hear the words of the gospel said to you, Christ's body given for you. As you take the crack and you dip it into the cup, you hear the words of the gospel shed, or told, spoken to you, Christ's blood shed for you. We do this with, with seriousness, with a somberness, with a grief, realizing what our sin did. We do so with a time of repenting and confessing sins that maybe God through the spirit, through his word is impressing upon you now. You can confess those, have a time of repentance. But we also do so with a time of celebration. We do so with a time of anticipation, knowing too that this one day, this struggle, this fight against sin, against following Jesus, this battle that we have in our mind, one day will be no more. We'll be made new fully and completely. We'll have resurrected bodies. We won't have this struggle to rebel against God. We will be in perfect relationship, perfect harmony with him. So this is what we do at the table. We anticipate his soon return where we will share a feast, a wedding feast with Jesus. We are with him perfectly with no sin, no death, no decay, perfect love and peace and hope. So at your, own, at your own pace, you can come forward and eat with us, and then we ask that you respond with us in song to worship Jesus together. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that through uh, your spirit, For this reason, Father, I ask, I bow my knees, I humble myself before you in a posture of submission to your leadership, and I ask that according to the riches of your grace, that you would grant us as a church to be strengthened with power through your spirit, so that Christ would dwell in our hearts, our hearts, our emotions, our reasoning, our consciousness, our logic, everything that who we are would be rooted, we would be dwelling on Christ. Pray that we'd be strengthened in our being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts, that you would give us strength to comprehend, to go after, to seek, to understand more with all the saints, with those in our life that are, that are saved, that are Christians, that are in Christ, that you would give us strength with them to understand the love of Christ to understand the the height, the depths, the breadth, the length of your love for us, that we would know, we would experience the love of God in Christ, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And Father, I ask now that you would do this through your spirit, through your word, that if there are those this morning here who are outside of Christ, that you would draw them to yourself. You would give them a desire for the things of you. You would give them the strength, the boldness to step out and talk and take that step of, I want to know more about Jesus. I see Jesus working in this church. I see Jesus transforming the lives of the people in this church, and I want to know him. Would you give those strength to respond? Father, for those who are in Christ this morning, who are dead and dull in their affections for you, who are distant from you, who are, Father, seeking after other things, their, their mind is captivated by things that are not of you. 
I ask that you are able to, we know, Father, you are able to do far more than we ask or think more, immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. You have that power. You raised your son from the dead on the third day. There is nothing that is impossible for you. There is nothing that you can't do. There is nothing that frustrates you. You will never be defeated. You have never been defeated. You are reigning and ruling. And right now, Father, you are with your son at your right hand. You are overseeing all things. So, Father, we know that and we ask. There is nothing uh, that you can't do. We, we know that you can do far more than we ask or imagine. And we ask that you are glorified in your church. We ask that you are glorified in this church that is a testimony of your grace. As we are being transformed to become more and more like you, from glory to glory, we are being transformed in your image. Father, may you be glorified now in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.